just like to uh, remind you of what the K-Group announcement kind of said is just jump in, be a part of a group. Uh, I know we only have six or seven weeks left before this season, this K-Group season ends. We break for the summer, and so it's a great chance to jump in and get connected to some people, try some groups out, and so I encourage you to do that. So there's a list on the welcome area when you leave uh, that you can grab a list and take that with you, give a call, text to the leaders, uh, check it out, go visit a few, but I encourage you to do that, and maybe by next year, you'll kind of be sold on which one to be a part of, because we really want you in community, and it's so great for you. Also, I'd like to um, highlight a book. Uh, this is one of the many resources we have on a resource cart. This is The Garden and the Curtain and the Cross, and this is highly recommended by many people here, and I'd like to give this away. Anybody born on leap year? All right, that's kind of sad. You only get a birthday every four years. Anybody? You got to raise it high. Somebody, yeah, back here. Is that right? Yeah, come on up here. Scott Brinson's niece. What was your name? I met you earlier. Brindley. Hey, here you go. That worked out well. Came to church to visit. You get a book. All right. Give her a hand. We're back in the book of John, chapter 7. Today we're just going to be in three verses, verses 37 through 39. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39 will be on the screen. Follow along your Bible uh, on the app. Hopefully take some notes. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who, would, who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray and we'll look at this scripture. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us not only wisdom and knowledge to live by, but we receive your Spirit. More importantly, God, that you come and reside within us in some way that we just really can't understand or explain, but we know it's a reality. And God, we thank you, and I pray that today that our hearts will engage with your word and your spirit will make these words alive in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of recap of where we've been, because we have been in John for a while, and it's easy to kind of forget where we've been, but Jesus had avoided the area of Jerusalem for some time now, six or seven months, because of the hostility of the religious leaders toward him. They wanted to destroy him, they wanted to arrest him. But yet we saw in the text, this chapter 7, that he shows up during the Feast of Booths, or as we may refer to it, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he shows up in this time where the Israelites would have been, and they still do this, they make these makeshift sort of shelters with palm branches and other plants on top, and they stay in these shelters as a reminder of their time in the wilderness after having left Egypt. And so they are reminded by this festival to rely upon God, his provision. They look forward to the Messiah coming to rescue them. So it's an incredible feast. It's, it's full of joy and celebration. And so we saw in the last few weeks' messages that Jesus had went into the temple and he began to preach the message and to preach the kingdom. 
and we see that there are thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in town during this time for this festival. And so there's many out-of-towners, and there's many, of course, local people from Jerusalem. The people from Jerusalem, they know that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, want to destroy Jesus. And so when Jesus stands up, and he has the nerve and the boldness to begin to preach and to teach in the temple, they question why is he not being arrested, and they even think maybe the religious leaders have accepted him as the Messiah. Could it be the Messiah? And so there's this confusion among the locals because they don't understand why the religious leaders aren't taking the action that they've said they're going to do. But as Jesus speaks, some of the crowd even begins to be possibly convinced that he is the Messiah. And so word is spreading through the crowd. There's a lot of uh, talk and chatter. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they hear this happening. They send for the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And the text doesn't tell us exactly how, but Jesus avoids arrest. Why ultimately is because verse 30 of chapter 7 says that his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for Jesus. So if you're newer to church or to the faith, God is in total control. I don't know what you've heard about the crucifixion, but Jesus wasn't a victim, okay? Jesus wasn't taken off guard by his arrest and crucifixion. He knew that his hour was coming, and this was not the time. And so a few days pass during the Feast of Tabernacles, and then Jesus shows back up again, as our text says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So this huge day of celebration happens. Now, I want to give you an appreciation, a little bigger appreciation for what really is going on in Jerusalem during this time in the temple. There's incredible some, some things like this 3D rendering of the temple area, the temple mount that we can pull up on YouTube. Go ahead and show that, Mason, that video. This is just a uh, illustrated diagram of what the temple would have been like during Jesus's time. And this is massive. The Temple Mount area is bigger than 30 football fields. I mean, this is a massive, massive area. And you see all the the, the incredible texture and detail that went into, this is what was called Herod's Temple, uh, because he restored the second temple. And so the tradition had developed over the centuries before Jesus that in the temple area, as they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, that there was this big water-pouring ceremony that would happen. And this water-pouring ceremony was a time of incredible celebration. The, the previous day, there had been uh, dancing and singing. The Levites and all the people, the choirs, had been singing and staying up much of the night in celebration of God and who He was. And the Levites had these huge oil-burning lamps that would light up the whole area of the temple uh, mount and, and that area where all this singing and festivity would have been going on. And the ceremony was connected here at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles to desiring God's providence and his provision for the next year's harvest that he would send rain for the crops. And so this huge ceremony was led by the high priest who would begin a procession and they would begin to walk together. And you can imagine the streets were lined. People were cheering. This was going as a super, super joyful situation. Tremendous fanfare. And they would take this golden container and they would walk down to the pool of Siloam. And if that sounds familiar, Jesus did a healing there. And he, they would gather up water. And then they would begin to make their way back to the temple as 
trumpets would sound, and as people were shouting, as there was much singing. And one ancient Jewish historian wrote this about the festival. He said, whoever has never seen the celebration of the festival of the water has never experienced true joy in his life. So get the picture. Incredible time. The choir is singing the Hallel, which is the Psalms chapter 113 through one Psalm 18. They're singing these psalms out to the Lord. And when they reach Psalm 118, everyone shouts together, the entire crowd, three times, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. And then the procession marches seven times around the altar before taking the water and pouring it on the altar. The only time that water is ever poured on the altar. And all of this is about God's provision. God, provide for us. So that's the picture. Huge celebration. Huge moment when Jesus stands up and cries out, If you're thirsty, come to me. I mean, I'm sure he stood up on something where everybody could see him. He draws attention to himself and he says, Come to me and drink. Come to me. Imagine the shock of this crowd as they're celebrating God's provision and Jesus calls out, come to me. I mean, if we did not trust in Jesus, if the people at that time didn't believe Jesus was Messiah, this is a perfect situation where C.S. Lewis's lunatic, liar, Lord kind of comes in. Who does that, right? Who stands up and says, forget all this stuff that you've been doing for centuries. Forget what God told you in Leviticus about focusing on that. Focus on me here. I'm the provision. Focus on me. If he's not Lord, he's a lunatic or a liar to do that. But he does it. And imagine the uproar. Imagine the high priest. Imagine the priest. And Jesus stands up as if to answer the prayer of what they're praying here. And Jesus tells the people to come to him for water. The water that they're so desperately dependent upon, which is rainwater, and Jesus says, I'm here as the living water. And here they are pleading for God to provide water for them, and they have no idea that God himself is standing in front of them, offering himself to them in this moment. Living water to quench their eternal thirst for everyone who would come and believe. Everything that is going on at this feast, think about this, was about Jesus. It ultimately all pointed to Jesus. Back in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was his feast. It was Jesus' feast. Jesus commanded the feast in Leviticus, and now he takes command of his feast. And he says, this points to me. Of course, we know the people are divided but there's no ambiguity in his words here. This is as clear as it gets. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And then he clarifies in verse 37 what he's talking about when he says to come to me. Come to me is about believing. He says, whoever believes in me. So to come to Jesus means to believe in Jesus. Jesus is not only the provision, come to me and drink. He's the provider. He's the provision and the provider for the people. And he doesn't just have what they need and what we need. He is what we need. And so he says, come to me. If God has seen, given you eyes to see that I'm truly Messiah, come, come to, to me. me. Come, come to me, to me and, and believe, believe on me. me. 
if you realize that you have this deep thirst that can never be quenched by all the religious activities and all the things that you're doing, because these things are all but a shadow pointing to me. Do you see the moment that we're in here, that Jesus is making this huge, bold claim? Believe. And let's think back through the book of John. Think about Jesus' word. Think about this. Think about your belief. All right, look at me here for a second. Think about your belief. And then think about the way John has portrayed the words and said the words of Jesus. If you're hungry, eat of Jesus. If you're thirsty, drink of Jesus. He says, if Jesus said, if you, if you want me, you have to eat and drink of my flesh. How did we ever arrive at such easy believism that just tried to sell people, here's your ticket to heaven? All right? Just pray this prayer, and you're going to go to heaven after you die. And we leave out the fact that Jesus is offering himself to us. And to think that it's just about getting to a destination so misses out on the entire purpose of salvation, which is Jesus is your life. He's your provider. He's your sustainer. He's that great exchange, your sin for his righteousness. That's the gospel. And Jesus is offering that to the people who come to me and to drink. Pastor John Piper says it this way, he says, Be done forever with the sad notion that saving faith, that believing on Jesus is a mere decision to believe facts. No! It is a spring in the desert when we are dying of thirst. That's Jesus. But our culture says, just take a little Jesus on your terms, get your trip to heaven, and then if you decide to work on this along the way, that's all well and good. Jesus says, if you're dying of thirst, I'm the answer. I've never been in jeopardy of dying of thirst. I doubt very many people in here that's been the case. Some of you may relate to what I experienced, which is extreme dehydration, where you have no liquid in your mouth whatsoever. You probably would be hospitalized if you were near a hospital. We were on a backpacking trip on the Appalachian Trail, and we climbed Blood Mountain, and we were only carrying small amounts of water, and we miscalculated. Uh, I was the leader, looked at the map wrong, my bad, right? And, and I thought we had water available to us, and we did not have any water stops available to us that whole trip up the mountain, and it was very slow going. And by the time we got to the top, and everybody was wiped out and wanted to take shelter, and a few people had you know, a few drinks of water left in their canteens and bottles. But me and another guy made our way down in the dark, down Blood Mountain, the other side of Blood Mountain, because we knew on the map there was a stream that was supposed to be located there. That before apps would tell you where exactly everything is. We're trying to follow the map, which is pretty hard to do. And so we get down to the bottom, and by the time we reach the water, I mean, I'm very parched. I'm feeling shaky and weak. And then, sadly, we get the water, and there's no way that I can drink the water for 15 minutes because you have to drop these little pellets in, little pills into the water, and it purifies the water. So it was a 15 to 20 minute wait before the water was purified. And you can imagine, even though I'm not dying in this moment, that is a, an, a, a waiting, and I'm thirsty. And, and everything you think about is this that water. Why can't I just drink it the way it is? You know, I need this water to help me feel better and, and to quench this thirst. And so there's this desperation, if you've ever experienced that. That's what Jesus is getting at there. He says, anyone thirsts, to come to him. And he's saying that everyone has a thirst. Everyone has a spiritual thirst, but everyone's not in touch with that thirst. 
everyone is thirsty, but they just don't realize what they're thirsty for. How many of you like to go to Mexican restaurants? All right, I love Mexican restaurants, but the bad thing about Mexican restaurants is the bowl of chips they put in front of you and the bottomless bowl of chips they put in front of you before, right? And you just eat and eat and eat and eat, and you're filling up on these things by the time your food gets there. You don't need a very big portion because you're stuck with three baskets of chips, right? You've been there with me, right? And so that's kind of the way we operate. We think we're thirsty or hungry, and we fill up with stuff that has no meaning, no value, no eternal purpose. We're stuffing ourselves full of things of this world, and, and of course, course we don't have, have we're not in touch with our thirst for God because we're so full of other junk that we put into ourselves. All right, let's make that real practical. Just that a constant barrage of media and music and screens and just life without God and operating in ways that we just don't even think about God. And no wonder that we're filling ourselves up with all this stuff, and it could be good things. But, but we keep filling ourselves up, and then we walk into church, and we may hear a thing or two that kind of connect to us, but for the most part, the Spirit is not too convicting, and He's not too involved in pulling this Word and planting it into your soul because you're so full of everything else, and I'm so full of this world that I don't have a thirst for the things of Christ. And that's real, honest, happens every week in church, and you know it's true for you probably as well. If you were up till wee hours of the night, taking in movie after movie and social media and all this stuff, and then you finally go to bed and you get six or seven hours of sleep and you roll in here, of course your body is tired, it's exhausted, and your mind is not in any way, shape, or form ready to hear the things of the Spirit. And so, of course, you're not thirsty. This past week, did the funeral for Jason Davis, who would sit right back here in this corner, on Tuesday, and funerals are a time where, as a pastor, I always make sure that the gospel is given very, very clearly. And the family, that's, they insisted, which I would have done anyway, they insisted the gospel would be presented. See, a funeral is a unique time where more people are in touch with their thirst, right? All of a sudden, they're looking at a guy who's 43 years old, laying there in front of them, and they're thinking, wow. That could be me. Wow, you know, I'm not promised anything. 80 years and then to catch the chariot to heaven, right? You know, I'm not promised that. And it's a time for people who maybe are not in touch with their thirst beginning to hear and to realize they do have a thirst for something bigger than this life. But most people... They just continue through and plugging more stuff and buying more stuff, acquiring more stuff, having their mindset on getting more and having more. And it's all about relationships and this and that. And Jesus kind of just, thirst for him just kind of takes a back seat. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. We need to be in touch with our thirst. We need to see that only Jesus can quench our thirst. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, all the scriptures are pointing to him. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Is that your experience? You know, we focus a lot on knowledge. We focus a lot on study. And we focus a lot on taking notes and applying more, you know, of ourselves and our mind to get more knowledge. And we need to do that. But this is about as experiential as you can get. That he says, out of your heart will just flow these rivers of living water. Is that your condition? 
the, the, the word, word is out, out of your heart, heart. It's, it's like, like literally out, out of your innermost being. It's this flowing, this, this, this deep joy that comes from God and the Spirit. So think about it. Just analyze and think back through your life, honestly. And, and me the same as I wrote these words. The checkout counter at the store is the living water flowing out of you there. With the server at the restaurant, does living water flow out? Or is it just what you want in your demands? From husband to wife, is there a living water flowing out of your relationship? From wife to husband, is that living water flowing? From children to parents, from parents to children, to those difficult people in the church that you're around, is that living water flowing out of you? So John provides in verse 39 all that Jesus has said in verse 37 and 38. Now he provides commentary to Jesus' statement. Because I'm sure John's scratching his head at this point when Jesus said this stuff, and he's like, what is he, what's he talking about here? Look, now this, this is John writing, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this living water flowing out is it's a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And as John listened, I'm sure he was thinking, what's he talking about? And then at Pentecost, when he received the Holy Spirit, he probably like, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about now. And he can write these words because he experienced the Holy Spirit real and true in his life. And so think about this for a second. Let's, let's, let's again get the picture of the context of the times. The people are in Jerusalem. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles by being in Tabernacles, celebrating the presence of God being with them while they were in the wilderness, following God's commands and living for God some of the time. And following Him, God came and dwelled with them, and they were celebrating God's dwelling among them. All right, this is happening in light, right in the, in, in the shadow of the temple where this huge, massive temple that was built for God's glory and God's presence in a unique way dwelled in the innermost part of that temple where only the high priest could go only once a year to offer sacrifices. In some unique way, God's Spirit dwelled there. His glory dwelled there. And so you got, we're celebrating God's presence in the wilderness, dwelling with us in the wilderness. We have God dwelling with us in the temple. And now we have Jesus standing in front of us, who is God himself, dwelling with us. That God himself is with the people. Jesus stands up and that's why he can say, believe in me, come to me and drink, because he is God dwelling among his people. And you see, what we have here, we have it, it, it just keeps increasing in intensity and in degrees. God, we're tabernacling together. God's presence is with us in the tabernacle. Now God's presence is with us in the temple. Now God's presence is with us in Jesus Christ. And you think, could it get any better than that? Apparently so. All right? Now, reality check here. Most of us at this point would say, how could it get any better than Jesus being with us? Because Jesus himself said, greater things than these that you'll see and you'll do when I send the Spirit. Not my words. Because I would never have naturally concluded that the Holy Spirit would be ratcheting it up from Jesus being with us. But the Holy Spirit dwells in us. He tabernacles. He makes his home. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the new covenant, God dwells 
among his people through the Holy Spirit, in his church through the Holy Spirit, were the people of God. And in the Old Testament, you know, the verse in verse uh, 39 says that the Spirit did not yet come. And, and, and if you're not familiar with this passage of Scripture, you may be questioning what that's about, because I thought I remember the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and go upon people. His power would be upon someone to accomplish a certain thing, and maybe for a period of time, and certain leaders and certain people who were really making a difference for God, the Spirit would dwell on them, but the Spirit did not indwell them. The Spirit did not tabernacle with them, did not live inside of them. And so this is amazing that Jesus is promising at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit would be coming to us. As John recounts, and looking back, he's writing this some years later, the Holy Spirit will come, and it's a game changer. The new covenant, everything changes, and there's a huge difference that it makes. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be our guide, he would be your teacher, your comforter. He promised that the Spirit's power would give us the ability to spread the gospel to others around us. The Holy Spirit baptizes us in the body, into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit seals and secures us until the day of redemption. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He guards and guarantees our salvation. The Holy Spirit assists you. Get this. He assists you when you pray. He comes alongside of you and helps you as you pray. He intercedes for you on your behalf when you don't know how to pray. He helps put Abba Father in your mouth, Romans 8.15, as you talk to God. And as you connect and commune with God, the Holy Spirit does that. He brings comfort and joy into our struggles. As you're going through things in life, the Holy Spirit brings comfort into us. And He convicts us of sin. And he's conforming us into the image of Jesus. He's making us more like Christ. That's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you if you're a believer. You may have never thought of it that way. You've never considered it. But that's the power that God has put inside of you through his Spirit if you're willing to walk in the Spirit. First John, John said it this way in John 3.24. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. You know that you're in Christ because the Spirit gives you that confidence and that hope. And so John could write about the Holy Spirit because he was there at Pentecost where he and the other disciples witnessed the birth of the New Testament church in the coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell in believers. And so in verse 39, when it says the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified, so after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension back into heaven, the Spirit is pulled, poured out at salvation now. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in you. And He leads you and guides you and convicts you. With all that, we still have a choice. Galatians 5.16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, the Holy Spirit in you convicts you of sin, but you still can live by one or two sources. You can live by what the Scripture calls the flesh, which is your humanness, which is this propensity you still have towards sin that we're not going to get rid of until we die and we're with Jesus. 
we're, we're still going to have this battle and the struggle that takes place within us. And so we can live by the flesh, we can sin, but when we're given Christ's divine nature, our flesh is not removed, but now we have real power over the decisions we make to choose holiness or to choose selfishness. And so the Holy Spirit works to convict that way that you know that as, as you do something and there's just this shame that comes over you and you're ashamed of the things that you do or say that you shouldn't do or say, that's the Holy Spirit convicting. And the conviction that makes you ashamed when you don't do or don't say the things that you ought to say or do, that's the Holy Spirit. And so, and so you can walk by the Spirit, or you can live in the flesh. You can ignore and put that out of your mind and say, I'm not going to obey and listen. Or you can submit to the Spirit, because if He's in you, He's leading you into truth. And so think of it this way. I put together some slides because I want you to see this. Before you came to salvation, this is what the Bible calls the natural person. It means that you are on the throne of your life, what you want to know is what's in this for me, that God says that in his word that the person in their natural state can do nothing to please God. Any works that you do, any nice gestures you do to your neighbor or the homeless guy on the, on the street, it's as filthy rags. It's worthless to God because you are dead in your sins. God's positionally, he's against you. You're under his wrath. So you are on the throne and at the bottom line, even though you may not ever ask this question to yourself like in a way that you actually put it to and articulate to yourself, it's what's in it for me. Well, when you put your faith in Christ, then go to the next screen. Christ now lives on the throne. All right? Christ is on the throne of your life. All this, these F's, picture that as the flesh, the works of the flesh. Like all these things that you're wired to want to do, these cravings. But, but the Holy Spirit, Spirit begins to come in and take on these things. And while Christ rules over your life, your sins don't instantly just go away. You're going to battle with them, and the Spirit is leading you. And sometimes you just ignore that, but it's a process of growing and growing to become more like Jesus. And He's doing that work of conviction in your life. He does it through your time in the Word, the time in prayer, the time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It happens in your K group when somebody says something or does something and you don't like and you forgive them. That moment is a time where the Holy Spirit begins to conquer those things in your life that are always seem to be defeating you and you can't quite get a victory over it. Little by little, progressively, you're becoming more like Christ. But you can ignore Scripture, you can ignore and avoid the body of Christ, but the Holy Spirit... Scripture says, we'll do a number on you, plain and simple. He will discipline his children, God says. He will bring discipline if you're running from him. And those who can just abandon all the means of grace that God provides for us to grow in these areas, if you just run away from that and there's no conviction, no, no problem with that, then it's a bad sign that maybe you don't even know Christ. And then Christ subdues more and more of that remaining sin in our life, and the Holy Spirit's presence and power is to begin to be enjoyed. And so you see the Holy Spirit just getting more and more victory over these areas of the flesh. And, and that's a, an incredible, if, you, if you've been journeying with Christ and you're really pursuing holiness, doesn't mean you don't have moments where you 
fall into sin and you struggle with sin. We're not saying that. But you see more and more of those things that used to just be like your besetting sins, the scripture says, these things that would always just have your number. And you see more and more victory over that. Because you're growing in holiness, you're becoming more like Christ. And the Holy Spirit is working. And he's using these means of grace for that to happen. And then, I just want you to be aware that the fallen flesh always has the potential to erupt, bringing great harm both to ourselves and to others. There is that possibility. You, if you've been walking with Christ 50 years, there could still be a moment where something that you had victory over 15 years ago, you thought like that sin was long gone, and all of a sudden, Boom, there's this explosion in your life, or, the, life, or this, this temptation, or this struggle, or just this mindset that says, I don't need you, God, anymore. I, want to, I just want to do things my way. It seems like the, the righteous get short in the stick, and the people are just living for themselves. They're the ones that seem to be prospering. I, I, just, I just need a break from this, God. I have a friend who's a pastor out in Washington, and he's kind of experienced that in his life right now. And it's so sad. He's walking with God, and he says, I'm done with ministry. I'm tired of people. I'm, I'm through with this. And he says, and, and, and he's giving, seems to be giving up on it. Don't do that. Yes, you can walk with God and not be a pastor. Yes, you can walk with God and not be leading or uh, being a missionary or leading a ministry. But you know in your heart of hearts when the Spirit begins to work on you, you know which way you're going, right? You know, are you avoiding the Spirit or are you submitting to the Spirit? And so these eruptions can happen. What was the uh, mountain, the volcano mountain in the Philippines? Forget the name of it now, that, that sat dormant for centuries. And people just got used to it. They thought it was a mountain. They totally forgot after all these years that there was a volcano under there, and it was part of the landscape, and it was beautiful on postcards until it exploded, right? That can happen if you begin to settle in and you start cutting corners on being with Christ in your quiet time, in your prayer time, in your, in your walk with others and, and accountability and fight club and all these things that God has given us in order to help us to walk in the Spirit so we don't give in and cave into the desires of the flesh. That's the Holy Spirit uses those things. And sadly, in a room this size, for sure, there are people who are running from the Spirit's conviction. You are. You're running away from it. And either you're in that midst of explosion where you're like, I don't know what to do, or you know that it's going to happen soon because your behaviors and your, the way you're living your life is bringing on this because you've lost your dependence on the Holy Spirit and His supernatural leading. Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come to me. Come to me and drink. Drink means believe. Put your trust, your hope, everything into Christ. You're holding nothing back. It's all about Him. And he who believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of Him will flow rivers of living water. And by that, He's talking about the Spirit who is given to you. Rivers of living water. In the Lent devotion that I'm reading and some of you are reading, Journey to the Cross, a few days ago, it lists out four ways we can respond to the gracious warnings of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we're doing wrong or running from God. He said the first thing we can do is excuse 
we can blame someone or something else. Aren't we good at that, right? We don't take responsibility. We line up all the reasons why we're in the right, even though we're, no, we're not totally in the right. We're pretty much in the right. But it's mostly like 95% that, and so I'm okay with doing this because it's their fault. Or we can deny. We can just deny the reality of our sin. We can just pretend like, you know, I'm just going to rewrite history. I'm going to rewrite my life, these situations, to make myself look more righteous than I really am. We do that as well. Other times we minimize our sin. We just try to play it down. And, 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 and our sin, this isn't, we don't see it as, we should see it as a moral rebellion against a holy God. We don't see it that way. We don't see that our sin is a moral rebellion against him, but it's just a small little decision I'm making that's no big deal, really, and minimize it. Do you do that? Are you doing that? Honestly, the Holy Spirit, if he's in you, you wonder why there's no rivers of living water flowing out of you. Are you, did, are you pushing aside the convicting work of the Holy Spirit? Embrace that. It's for your spiritual health, your spiritual life. Don't play it down. Own it. And I want you to know for certain that when I talk about a river of living water flowing out of you, it doesn't mean you plaster a smile on your face all the time. Hey, brother, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing? And it means that just everything's always great. We don't deny reality here. That the life is hard. The struggles of life are real. And it's a battle that you fight. I fight every single day. But it's what Paul said, that we know that whatever situation that I'm in, I find contentment in that situation. That's as the Holy Spirit takes over more and more and more of those areas of the flesh. You'll find yourself more and more in that situation where you say, I don't understand, but there's just a supernatural peace even though my world is falling apart. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. Where are you at? The fourth way you respond to conviction? Confession. Confession. Denial, minimize, excuse, or you can just confess. Confess just means... I'm going to say the same thing that you say about this God. The word is, I'm in agreement with you. The Greek word homologeto means, I'm just going to agree completely with you on what this sin is. I'm not going to minimize or make it look less. I'm just going to own it. God, this is a rebellion against you. A rebellion against your word. That's confession. Confession is, I'm not saying it was their fault in any way. I'm saying it was all me. I made the decision. I did it. It's what I chose to do. And when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our walk with him is restored. The Holy Spirit begins to lead us to do God's will and see God's will. And that river of living water can flow out of us in whatever situation or circumstance we find ourselves in. So the application, the takeaway today is if you're a believer, not my word, but Jesus, you have a river of life flowing out of you. You do. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit should be becoming more and more evident in your life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These things are blooming in your life as you submit to the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. 
That's, that's the head. head. No, no, that's true. Heart. How are you responding to the convicting ministry of the Spirit? Excuse, deny, minimize, or confess. God's working to make you holy. And then on our hands, the practical. Here's what I want you to do. This is about as practical as it gets. Memorize and meditate upon Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, when I quote often in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Ephesians 5 says, Don't be drunk with wine, where is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes, as you study this, he goes through, then here's what happens when you walk in the Spirit. And then if you go to the Colossians verse, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then the same results happen when you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You're singing to yourself and others with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making this displays to the Lord and to others. Your life is a song to live before those around you. And even in the struggles and the adversities and the hardships, that you have a song that can be sung, and this river can flow out of you because the Word of Christ is in you richly, and you're walking in the Spirit, and you're not being drunk with wine, but you're, you're being led by God's Spirit and letting Him control you. Will you do that? Confess. Let Confess. Let His work just blossom in your life into rivers just flowing, making a difference for His kingdom and for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, passages like this make us really do a gut check, a reality check in our relationship with you because it seems like many times that there's not a river of living water flowing out of us. But we believe that our, your spirit is in us as you said that it is and it came and now we submit and we walk by the spirit and we don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. And God, I pray that you'll allow this week the believers in here who need to confess that they just they know that awful shame that they're experiencing right now, that, that frustration in their minds and their hearts because they're out of your will and it's a horrible place to be, God. I pray that you'll allow them just to own it and confess it. And God, I pray for the person who's, who's lost in here. They may have a, a little conscience issue here and there, but they don't know the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. God, may today be the day they come to you, Jesus, and drink. And they experience this living water. And they have this water that just flows from them. God, may we see you as the provision and the provider of this. And God, I pray that you'll be glorified in our church. Help us to be the church of one another. Help us to encourage and help and spur each other on. Because we need one another. And God, I pray that we will be wonderful examples to Phil and Shannon as new members of this church and others, God. That we will come alongside people and help in their discipleship, to see them become more like Christ and use us, use our spiritual gifts in those capacities. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.